Howdy folks, this is Dan Gross and welcome to Extended Harmony for Outside In Music. Outside In Music is a record label and a jazz media company that connects artists with their passionate fan bases. Please visit our website, outsideinmusic.com, where you can see our artists, their recent releases, our podcast, video interviews, and links to get in touch with us. This podcast you're listening to, Extended Harmony, is produced monthly that features musicians in the jazz, blues, and soul umbrella who create original music. We discuss their lives, influences, their creative process, and some advice they'd like to pass along. Joining us today is bassist, composer, arranger, band leader, and educator Joe Policastro. Originally from Ohio, he has spent time performing in Europe and settled in Chicago in early 2003, where he still is today. He's an in-demand bassist for vocalists, combos, and big bands alike, and today we're going to talk to him about himself, his trio, and his latest album, Screen Sounds, and anything else that comes up along the way. Thanks for tuning in, and please enjoy this episode of Extended Harmony. Joe, thanks for joining me today, man. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. Uh, let's st- start by talking about your early musical life. You are a Cincinnati native, yes? That is correct. So tell us a little bit about um, yeah. your... Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I say yeah, I was born and raised in mm-hmm. Cincinnati. Um, I didn't come from a uh, musical background, hmm. though. My, you know, no one in my family played music, and at that time, the, you know, where I lived in Cincinnati in the school systems, there were no, um, there, you know, there really wasn't any music education. There was no school band or anything like that. Hmm. Um, so I kind of got into, you know, I mean, my love for music kind of came through, you know, just whatever people like my friends were listening to, what I saw on TV, you know, of course, mm-hmm. MTV and things like that were big at that time. So um, that was kind of how I got into music. So you would you would no school band? No, no. I went to a uh, real small parochial school <laughs> it's like in the you know the catholic side of cincinnati and stuff right. and there was there was no no school band nothing like that so how did you i mean obviously uh, you've had academic training though so did you start that when you were younger just kind of going to a local place that taught lessons that was all much much later um hmm. i kind of I, I mean i i took piano lessons when I was really, really young, Mm -hmm. and it didn't really stick, and then, I mean, I was mainly interested in just, you know, like, like rock bands and things like that, and I got interested in the electric bass when I was Mm. pretty young, but even that was just, like, you know, playing around on my own or, you know, learning things off of the radio and Mm -hmm. just playing with friends and such. Yeah, so when did you start, uh, I want to come, we'll come back around to your influences and because I know you mentioned TV, and this is kind of where a lot of, there's some of your more recent music comes from. Um, but when exactly did the academic music start? This isn't so far. This isn't a typical jazz musician story. A lot of these guys come from really musical families, and they get training young. But it sounds like you were a bit of a late bloomer. Well, I, you know, I I I think it, there's there's a good side and a bad side to this, and I mean, mm-hmm. I don't so. I was, uh, by the time I was, you know, probably about 12 or 13, I was really interested in lots of different music. I just didn't have a lot of access to it. Hmm. So for me, it was always like I would hear something and then I would try to find out where that was coming from and that would lead me down another rabbit hole. But what what kind of broke for me is there was this one time I was just hanging out in a music store and this this R&B bass player, this older guy heard me and he was like, you don't know anything about the electric bass. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he was just like, and, he, and we were talking and stuff, and he, so he kind of took me over to his place, and he was showing me, it was honestly the first time somebody identified like jazz music and R&B for me for you know where I had a clear understanding of this so he was turning me on to like Jocko and and James Jamerson and uh, yeah. he and honestly it was like the first time I really saw like a jazz clip he showed me an Oscar Peterson trio video that oh. he had and I just like that kind of blew my mind mm-hmm. seeing Ray Brown on the upright bass and that mm-hmm. was really where it started so then I you know I, I managed to get an upright bass and um, at that point I I was just trying, I would just ask around, like, you know, well, who do I study with? What do I do? You know, and I've, I managed to hook up with a guy from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Wow. And I got really serious, really fast mm. on the instrument. Um, and that was really where it started. I joined the Symphony Orchestra at that point. And at that point, I started to kind of find the network of, of jazz musicians in the city. And, and Cincinnati was great at that time because, you know, there were all these older musicians mm-hmm. that would really take you under their wing and put you in their bands. And, like, you really learned on the job. I mean, I was, I was getting gigs with, with phenomenal musicians in Cincinnati well before <laughs> I should have been. Right. I, mean, they, I mean, they were very gracious that way. Mm. And where did you uh, go to college, Joe? Um, I, first I went to Miami University in Ohio just because mm. that guy that I was studying with right. from the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra taught there. Mm. And I wanted to keep studying classical double bass for a little while longer. And then yeah. I just really knew I didn't want to head that direction, you know, professionally. I, I mean, it was, it was fabulous music, and I mean, it was such great training and stuff. So I dropped out, and then I eventually um, rejoined the conservatory in Cincinnati mm. and did my um, undergrad there, and then later in life got a master's degree at DePaul University. And uh, when did you in Chicago. Make, right, I was, so that's when you made the move to Chicago? No, I'd actually already moved here. I'd been mm. here for um, almost probably close to a decade before hmm. i i just uh, i did a master's degree later in life just to have it so of course well it's, it's a good goal to accomplish you know uh it's, it's not i know i would like to do that at at some point <laughs> uh you've actually something you said earlier was actually a great lead-in to something i wanted to ask you about one thing that uh, really impressed me about uh, your playing is obviously your interpretation of the music but as a bass player myself i'm watching you play and you have exceptional technique on both pizzicato and arco and hearing you talk about your background i'm learning oh he started off on the electric bass and he played classical bass so i and for you how did you develop this technique how did you grow it did it ever point at any point you say, man, I, I'm really starting to learn here. I mean, you mentioned getting serious, but I, I am just curious about the process of developing your technique. Well, so the guy that I that I studied with, mm-hmm. his name's uh, Rick Vizicero, and he was, you know, he was one of the International Society of Bassists, mm-hmm. like solo competition winners. And right. I mean, Rick was a, I mean, he was a... Um, I'm trying to remember sort of like his background in particular... Mm-hmm. Um, like he studied with Eugene Levinson, and I mean, just these this this great history of classical double basses, mm-hmm. and he was kind of a diehard of the of the Raboff method. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there were kind of new method books popping up from like Hal Robinson and that. And right. I mean, when I got to Rick, I have to be honest, I couldn't read music. Yeah. In fact, my very first experience in like youth symphony orchestra, you know, I pr- I worked really hard on the music, and yeah. I was able to, you know, like I principal, and I and I remember going in there and 
I could, we're like the first symphony they throw on the stand. It's like we're looking at Chike 5, and I'm yeah. just watching notes go by. It was horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, can, but it, I, can, but it, it I literally really, can't imagine. It was awful. I mean, but, it, but, it, but that kind of stuff is the, it was the motivation. It was like, all right, I have got to get my sight reading together. So, it was yeah. like, these were good motivators. And I think what I was saying, the good and the bad side of that is one, I don't take anything for granted. And I mean, mm. so things that I wanted to learn, I really wanted to learn. And then two, having that kind of grassroots background, you know, where you're struggling to figure out things. Where mm. I remember the first time I tried to understand a walking baseline, I literally wrote out every single note. Nice and I was just looking. Looking at it, not even understanding what they were, and I'm thinking, like, <laughs> how does this bass player memorize this bass line? This is right. incredible, you know. And then people are like, you know, you, you moron, this is a walking bass, and he's playing over the chord. And he's like, he's, and it's like, oh, this makes so much more right. sense. But but having to go there, that's just struggle that way to try to piece all these all these things together. Yeah, and, well, you know, it's it's funny hearing you talk. I, I was. A lot in the same. I mean, I I learned how to read music, but it's nice hearing someone else who appreciates that. Oh no, you actually got to work pretty hard at something. Uh, so <laughs> let, let, let's talk uh, about your move to Chicago for a little while here. Uh, you, I mean, you mentioned you, you had moved out there and, and you you were trying to seek work. Uh, in those early days in Chicago, what was a Joe Joe Policastro's life as a bassist like then? Well, so Cincinnati, um, you know, because I did come up through that, what I call like an apprenticeship system, mm -hmm. you know, the, my background was really in, you know, jazz and standards. And there was, there was a good, like traditional jazz scene there. So I got to play with a lot of Dixieland bands, but a lot of what I was doing was, you know, I, I started accompanying a lot of vo vocalists in mm -hmm. Cincinnati. So when I first moved to Chicago, one of the ways that I got employed almost seven nights a week right off Holy the bat moly. was when people knew that you knew these songs and that mm. you could transpose. And I mean, right. that is, that's such, I mean, even at that time when, you know, when I think the music, I mean, this was, you know, in the very early 2000s, I mean, you know, there, that, that young lion thing was still going on. A lot of the jazz groups, even right. the, you know, the more, more quote unquote progressive ones were still kind of focused on, you know, bebop and standards mm -hmm. and everything. Not that that's not prevalent now, but mm -hmm. I mean, it was really the, you know, the music du jour of that time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when people knew that they could trust somebody that way, it was, it was easy to get work. And to be honest, that was kind of the bulk of what I, what I did for, you know, most of my time in Chicago, I would say up, up until I kind of started focusing more like on, on this trio of mine and some of these, some, some other side projects. I mean, I still, obviously, I, I mean, anybody works as a side man and, right. you know, companies, other people and plays and projects, but, I mean, back then it was just, I, I mean, so much of my work was just accompanying vocalists and playing in some, you know, instrumental trios and things. How did you learn from your time being a struggling sideman, and what are some things that you learned then that you apply now? Well, I think one thing about being a, a sideman that you can take for granted is, like, what leaders have to do, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and I think that that's, you know, it's really easy to answer the phone and just mm -hmm. go and expect everything to be great yeah. and, you know, to have nice gigs and have accommodations and, you know, and that's easy to take for granted. And I think sometimes when you're, you know, if you're able to work for a successful artist, um, 
it's a good idea to sometimes take stock of of all the things that they that they have to do extra musically mm. to make sure that that their you know things are functioning. So I think really good um, accomplished performers sometimes you can I mean there's there's all obviously music is is of the utmost importance, but mm-hmm. it's interesting to see people who know how to lead a group who know how to. Um, to talk to an audience, you know, yeah. who know how to how to structure a night, you know, who mm-hmm. know how to, and who know how to program music, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and you have learned that very well, I know, over the years. And uh, I, I want to start unpacking something uh, a little bit. Uh, you mentioned your early days in Chicago. You know, you were focusing on these different things, but all of a sudden, you started to become a leader of your own trio and uh you you've had this permanent residency gig for a while yes is that how this music developed you you got this residency gig and you just invited guys in i mean how how did the band form and what uh how did the residency you have fit in so about um God, almost nine years ago now. Oh. Um, I we there was there was a club called Pops for Champagne. It used mm. to be a seven night a week jazz club. It actually was at a different location, and then about eleven years ago, it moved to this new location. And they had a downstairs jazz club, and then kept another part of the club upstairs. Mm. So they had the full time jazz club downstairs, but they decided to add music upstairs. Mm. And it was originally just this like background music gig. It was a guitar and bass duo, and it wasn't even mm. under my name. I was a sideman on it. It was a guitarist mm. that worked with a lot. Um, and that eventually developed into a trio again still under this other guitar player's name and at that time just because we were playing together it started off as one night it eventually became three and then you know I started arranging for the group a lot because I've I've always done a lot of arranging even Mm -hmm. for you know for other ensembles that I was a part of um, from from big bands all the way down to you know just you know small group jazz Mm -hmm. of any number of horns you know right but it was really fun to start arranging for the trio, and we um, that that group eventually did was doing all this like West Side Story material. Hmm. And the original group is actually the ver- the very first record I put out under my name um, uh, of that West Side Story stuff is the result of that band. Hmm. But that group, that guitar player, actually was a great guitar player Dan Eflin. He was kind of dropping out of music and just wanted mm. to pursue something else. He's just one of those guys that just, you know, got fed up with it and, you know, loved music and played great, but just wanted to go a different direction. Yeah. So I took over the trio at Pops, and then I had to get a new guitar player. And also the drummer, the original drummer of that group left, and that's when our current drummer, Michael Avery, came on. Mm-hmm. And there were some different guitar players that kind of floated in, and guys who play great, but I was really, I, I had a particular direction that I wanted to start kind of moving the music in, just on yeah. a different arranging that I was doing. Dave, who was originally from Chicago, had moved back to town from New York, and I brought him in one night, and it was just such a, such a great fit. And at that point, which that was about three years ago, I would say really that's when we when I started to to really focus on the band as mm. as you know as an entity that I was pushing outside of Chicago and you know putting out more releases and such. So yeah, and so I think this is actually an interest. This is a bit of an interesting origin story, and it's not a typical one that you sort of appropriate is too strong a word. But it's interesting that you. I mean, you were playing with this guy. And you liked the rep he was playing, and you found your own take on it. This wasn't a sort of divine spark moment. I mean, it, it kind of mimicked your life path in a way. It wasn't just like everything was dropped in front of you. I mean, you, 
you had to work with you had to rock what you got and you had to figure out something and can you tell us a little bit about sort of the early time when you realized like oh hey i can actually get a band together and i can put together my own rep that's got to be kind of a scary thing for someone who hadn't been a band leader before well, I had, you know, so interestingly, I, I had led, I had led bands before, but mm-hmm. nothing that I wanted, that I thought I was going to try to like push beyond mm-hmm. Chicago. So mm-hmm. there was a group that I, I would always been been really interested. I, I love Ornette. I love mm-hmm. Jimmy Jeffrey. I love Jerry Mulligan. Jerry Mulligan oh, was one of my yes. earliest influences, and I had this group that did all. I, I transcribed all of the all of the Mulligan quartet material, Whoa. and then wrote an entire book of original material for that group as well. And it was called Giroux, and it was mm-hmm. really active from the time I, I moved to Chicago until it's actually now kind of up and running again. It took a long hiatus. Oh, cool! But I so I had led that I had led that group, and so I I, I mean I, I definitely was focusing on side projects, but nothing where I was going to take, you know, take up the majority of my days, you know? Right. And so when I, you know, when the trio really started hitting all these particular notes and I, and where I really felt that the thing about like the Mulligan project, it's, it's like, it's still as, as much fun as it is to play that music. And, and I think it's really important to keep certain styles alive you definitely still feel like that's somebody else's music and mm-hmm. thing even if you're contributing original music to it right this was the first project under my name where i honestly felt like i don't think anything sounds like this mm-hmm. i think the 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 collective aspect of the way the group functions together there it just felt special to me and i and and that was really the moment where i was like you know, yes, the band is under my name as the as the leader, but it doesn't function that way, and it doesn't feel like that musically. Mm. Um, but it's nice, I think, in some ways, to have a band that has a, a person at the front of it, so that it's just clear in terms of when somebody does have to make choices about what we're going to do or where right. we're going to travel and things. It makes it can make it easier. Um, yeah. But that was that. Honestly, that was it for me. It was just when when. Hearing the the original music that we do, and then you know these sort of drastic reworkings mm. of other material that that we do. Um, not that that of course hasn't been done, but I just I, I really feel like there's 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 no other group right now that kind of takes the same approach that we do. Uh, well, it's hard to argue with that, and uh, that's one of the reasons I I wanted to have you on. So, can you kind of tell us what your approach is? I mean, you do. When you mentioned you do original compositions, you do really amazing and interesting takes on the theme from The Godfather or West Side Story. What's sort of the process from deciding, okay, here's the source material I want to work with to where it, where it ends up being? So the, I mean the, the and this is the uh, luxury of having <laughs> a steady gig three exactly. nights a week. So we get to do. I mean, so I can I, I, I can pick anything I want. So it's mm-hmm. like I you know right now I I just started uh, we just started doing a whole bunch of new music. I wrote a bunch of new tunes and then like I just had always wanted to play Goldfinger. You know, right. so it's like I just something like that. It's like I'll just I'll I'll start working on it. I'll bring it to the guys. I'll have a clear. Usually I I don't want to just play a tune so i usually try to have something in mind but i like to you know we we kind of we talk about pops as the, as the factory mm. you know where it's like we go ahead and we bring it in we kind of bounce it around a little bit we kind of talk 
play through. Then we start sort of turning it on its head, and maybe at that point something in that process will click mm. where we begin to say, like, that's this is the direction we're going to go with this, or that's how we're going to, you know, right. now reimagine this. Because the, the, the one thing that I, that I absolutely insist on with, with taking this other material is that I want anybody who knows, I don't want people to not be able to recognize the material mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that kind of jazz approach of just like, oh, I took a Stevie Wonder song and I stuck a bunch of dumb jazz chords to it. <laughs> and then, uh, and it's just, it's just, I, I just, I don't, it's, I've got no interest in that, you know? Yeah. And, and, it, and so if you're going to do the Stevie Wonder song, it's like, I want to know about the DNA of that song mm. and what makes it work and then try to, turn that inside out, you know, right. so that the, anybody, any casual listener can be like, wow, that's creeping or, you know, mm-hmm. but then where the, the direction that it takes the people, I mean, I, I have to say that's the one comment that we get over and over again. The thing mm-hmm. I'm most proud of is that people always say, this is so cool. I, I love that song, but I would have never imagined it in this mm-hmm. way. Or you guys, you know, all the voices are present. It's so, such a democratic group and that kind of <laughs> yeah. stuff. So. And you, that was a great lead into my uh, next couple questions. We'll we'll start with this one. You mentioned uh, having the ability, having the luxury was the word you used of having a permanent gig, of having a residency. And more and more musicians don't have this. And I, I'm curious about your thoughts as to why you think this is important, and if it's what you believe that there should be more. Why do you think there should be more? Well, I'll tell you just from a, so I like to think of myself as a listener first. You know, all of us that play music and all of us involved in music, I would hope that all of us are are listeners first because we love music. And I know as a listener that, you know, I mean, obviously there's some forms of music where bands have to have music up on stage. But there's nothing that gets me less excited than to go see a group of people (laughs) staring at music on a music stand, trying to work through a bunch of difficult arrangements that they Mm. play together once every six months. Now, that, of course, is a reality in this music, and there are so many unbelievably talented musicians that are just crack players that Mm -hmm. that pull this off very, very well. It still is not the same thing as seeing a band that functions together, that mm. actually plays together, that has logged hours. Right. And there is no, there's no replacement for time in chemistry. Mm. I don't care the, like how well you play together. The more time you spend with those people together, the deeper the connection will be. And yeah. you can, when you, when you see a, a true band that plays together and you, and you watch that freedom mm. of the, of them interacting and the way that they play over the music. I mean, that that to me is what you're trying to get to. I could, could I always draw the parallel, like you know, in jazz, it's so acceptable to like have four people that like barely ever play together and never rehearse and go go play a gig. Right. And like, what other world would you ever <laughs> think that that's acceptable? Like, what right. rock and roll band would you be like? Be like, I don't know. We we brought our music along right. and. We're gonna just right. kind of see what see what happens. We're gonna end songs badly and you know <laughs> talk a lot in between tunes and yeah. Well, you know it's it's I, I definitely wanted to talk with you about that because uh, last episode of this podcast I had a uh, Tom Christensen on from Spin Cycle and he he said a lot of the same things and it's it's like a sports team too. You know you got to have chemistry but you got to spend time together too. Uh, leading into the next 
thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, the two guys you play with, Dave Miller and Michael Avery, um, both are very not only talented but unique musicians in their own right. And Michael, in particular, he plays you know this this kooky drum kit with this modified bass drum that was a double bass drum. He uses a rubber joke sunny side up egg as a snare mute. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are the things that these two guys specifically bring, bring to this group that no one else can? So both both of these guys have absolutely unique voices. I mm-hmm. mean, there's you know, so that that in of in in of itself is is something that you just can't manufacture. You know, it's mm-hmm. like people who have very personal voices like dave mm-hmm. touches the guitar you're like that's dave miller mm-hmm. michael plays the drums and just the things that he does and the sounds that he gets in his palette and his mm-hmm. approach you're like that's michael avery right so that's that's cool but then that has to that has to work together in the stew you know it's like right. you can't have one spice stick out of, mm-hmm. you know and that i think is is the um, the thing about having the three of us together are these three very individual voices. Hmm. And all of us have, um, you know, if you think of, of, of a bunch of circles, I mean, we have parts where we overlap quite a bit, which mm-hmm. is why I think we work together. But then each person has things that are unrelated to the, to the other. And, I, and I, it's, that, it's that mixture of what we have in common versus what, you know the uniqueness of us. I think that that gives the group its sound. Yeah, it's a, and it's a very good-looking. The Venn creative diagram. energy of all those guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Then that's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. Uh, well, we only have a I haven't have a handful more questions for you. Excuse me. Um, before we talk about the new album, Screen Sounds, can you tell us a little bit about the albums you did previously? You talked a little bit about Jeru, which was your first one as a as a leader, and then um, West Side Story Suite and Pops. Can you tell us about those ones before we go into Screen Sounds? Yeah. So, so West Side Story um, Suite is pretty self-explanatory mm-hmm. it was a sweet for jazz trio of the yep. music of west side story but no it was really that album was tons of fun to work on mm-hmm. and um again it wasn't this like thing i was like i have to write a suite of west side story it was just mm-hmm. we were playing the music people were responding to it really well and it was fun to then take this extremely challenging music with mm-hmm. odd forms and strange melodies and try to pay honor you know honor the material but then how to make it is like you know jazz vehicles and stuff so and that material in the hands of the current band is really taken on another life i almost Mm -hmm. wish i love i love the the guy the original Mm -hmm. iteration of the trio but man i wish i could almost re-record the thing (laughs) and then pops was an homage to pops for champagne Mm -hmm. and you know as we were kind of transitioning into other material we had you know the group does so much music from you know the '60s up to the mm-hmm. up to the current day, reworking that material. So we wanted to, we thought it'd be just a fun album to record all these jazz arrangements of pop tunes and then pay homage to pops. And I had a couple of guests on that record, guys, guitar players that had been a part of sort of the history of mm-hmm. of, of that of that venue. Cool. So that was a fun album to do that way as well. Yeah, and uh, can you tell us about Screen Sounds, your latest album? So this album is is really fun and mm-hmm. it's very personal to me. It was something I kind of led with at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. It's all movie and TV music, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I, all of us are you know in the band. We're all big um, film and TV buffs, mm-hmm. but 
for me specifically, I mean, that was my sort of gateway to, to discovering so much music from MTV to David Letterman to CBS Sunday Morning, mm. you know, just whatever it, may, it, whatever it was, movie scores. So we just, and again, it, it took shape sort of by accident. We just, I, I often bring in a lot of movie things and such, and then we started looking at it and we're like, man, that'd be a really fun album to put together, you know, grab yeah. some movie scores and rework them, maybe some songs that were featured in movies and... Mm-hmm. And that's how it came about. Well, too cool. It's it's a great album. We'll put up a link for it for people can watch it. And uh, before I ask you uh, what track you want us to play, I, I like to end all my interviews with this this question. I feel it's an important one. And you work as an educator, so I think you'll be prepared for this. Do you have any advice for aspiring artists? Boy, that's a, that is a very good question and a loaded one at that. A yes, um, little bit. One of the things I, I just I always I always say to students is I will never use the word should. Hmm. Um, I don't think anyone should do anything. Hmm. There are things that I that I think people will need to do if they want to accomplish certain things. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, the, the of the utmost importance is to you have to follow your your own path you need mm-hmm. to you need to be true to yourself you have to you know you need to believe in the things that that you like and the artists that you like and developing your voice and your instrument that way that being said you know there you know there are sandbox skills that you're going to need to learn mm-hmm. along the way it doesn't mean you're going to need to learn to be a crack reader but if you don't learn to read music there are going to be opportunities that you're not going to be able to take advantage of. Right. You don't have to be able to play your instrument from A to Z, but the limiting your technique is going to limit certain possibilities of ex- of expression. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you're not going to be able to express yourself. I would never say that under any stretch of the imagination. Right. But so I, I think what in and you also can't close yourself off from from influences or sounds just because they're maybe they you know they didn't come to you naturally mm. and, and such that doesn't mean you have to take things that come to you as well so i would just say be, being open minded taking stock of of everything you hear all the people around you listening to your peers but but also listening to 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 your you know quote unquote elders you know mm-hmm. your teachers and such and musicians that have come before you and filter all those things through you know your own passions and stuff and then make your choices accordingly thank you so much for your time joe really appreciate it is there any tune any track you'd like us to play off of screen sounds to wrap up this podcast well, uh, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about that. I, I think the the, the opening track, um, Yojimbo, the main title theme, um, is particularly interesting because um, it's one I think that demonstrates the real wide sonic palette of the group, and then it being a movie score that was written for a a, a big band with mixed Japanese instruments, mm. asking a jazz trio of guitar bass and drums to try to pull that off is, is, <laughs> is kind of a kind of a big feat and if it was a fun one at that yeah. and i really think it kind of showcases the broad palette of the group you know it's just all these all the percussion things that mike gets into with it you know there's arco parts in mm-hmm. there dave's got all these effects on the guitar all of which are created naturally there's no mm. pedals on any of that stuff that's wow. all him all amp manipulation and stuff so okay well we look forward to checking that out joe thanks so much for your time today man 
Oh, thank you.